there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before. And it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. I thought it would be a good idea to kind of start over. There really is no beginning to this, so you can't really pick a beginning, but there can be a starting point. And the more I thought about what that might be, the more I felt there was a need to have a starting point for people. People who come to the work from a lot of different directions, a lot of different places. Yesterday, we talked about salvation. Salvation in the, in the theological world. There are two conflicting schools of thought about it. One is salvation by faith or salvation by works. Grace and predestination. So you get the grace and you're predestined to have salvation and so you, you get it. And that's all there is to it, and there's nothing you can do about it. Or opposing that is the idea of free will. Well, there is something you can do. There is some way that you can wiggle yourself under the right influence. Or there's something that, that you can discover or, or do that will help you. Then there's the idea of relaxation and self-acceptance or effort. World affirmation or world denial. And when we talked about this yesterday, one of the things Connie said was, well, you know, all of that seems so formatory. The, the either-or approach is the problem of the false personality. So our problem is, who are we? Really, that's, that's the main issue with all of this. Is it really doesn't matter how you get to wherever it is you want to get. It's a matter of, who are you? If you are this person that, that is sitting in a chair here in this body, then you are your body. You are your thoughts, you are your feelings, and you are your name. The body and the name are the two things that we have in this life that give us a sense of permanence, a sense of self, a sense of I am this one person. We end up with one body in life. And even though that body changes from birth to death, it changes so slowly that we don't recognize the change really. And so we're able to say, well, this is me, this is me, and I'm just slowly, gradually changing. And we end up with pretty much one name. You go by one name. So if someone calls your name, you answer. So this gives us this idea that we have one permanent I. This one permanent I seems to see everything in the world in opposites, in a matter of opposites, hot, cold, light, dark, up, down, left, right, instead of wholeness, instead of two parts, the left part and the right part being two parts of the whole, or the up part and the down part, or the front side and the back side being parts of the whole. It sees them as opposites. So the problem becomes, how is it we can see things as whole? Why do we see things as opposites? And what philosophers and religion and teachers and esoteric teachings have tried to point to is the fact that the illusion that we are one is based on an idea of separateness. It's based on an idea that I am not you, therefore I am me. And where you stop, I begin, or where I stop, you begin. So this whole idea of separateness, this whole idea of duality, is what causes us so much difficulty in the world. 
then salvation then becomes somehow removing ourselves or getting ourselves out of this difficulty, somehow finding out what we really are. If we're not this body, and if we're not this collection of thoughts and feelings that answers to a name and that houses itself in a body, then what are we? And how can we find out what we are so that we can get rid of this dual thinking, this either or, us and them, up and down, black and white, hot and cold thinking. How do we get to wholeness is really the question. The thing is, no matter what one calls it, this, this thing that we call ourselves, no matter what we call it, we can, so Freud called it the ego, and Paul called it the, the carnal man. Somebody else calls it something else. But the idea is that it too is divided up into two. There is this, the carnal man, then there's the spiritual man. We're, we're stuck with that problem. But no matter what we call it, one of the things that we must do, if we wish to get beyond it, if we can see it as a limited thing that is keeping us from experiencing the wholeness of life, all that life has, all that life is, all that we are, if we wish to experience more of what actually is available to us, theoretically, potentially, then we have to stop calling it I. We have to stop saying, I want this, I think this, I feel this, I feel that. Somehow we've got to get to the point where we can separate from it. So the first step is, if I can separate from it, maybe I can look at it and see what it is. But as long as I'm not looking at it, as long as I'm calling it me, as long as I'm being it, I can't really see it. So it can do anything that it wants, and I can't really see it because I am it. So we find ourselves in situations of remorse and regret when it did something that we didn't want it to do. Why is it that we know better, but we act worse? So we have this fragmentation, this conflict within ourselves. And salvation then becomes the resolution of that conflict, the bringing together of these parts. And this is a problem because we think that we are already together. This whole identity thing, this whole I thing, this whole me thing, this whole ego thing, this whole self thing, based on, well, I've had this body ever since I can remember, so I must be in this body. Well, I've had these thoughts and I've had these feelings. These are, this, is, this is my mind thinking. This is, this is my heart feeling. So this is me, and it's in this body. So we have it in a container, and we have a label on it, and we call it whatever it is our name is. And so we have this certainty that we are one. Yet, at the same time, we have this experience that we do things that we, we didn't want to do. It's like, how did that happen? So we end up with this huge conflict. And salvation, by whatever, whatever you choose to call it, salvation, liberation, escaping from prison, freedom, freeing yourself from the self, whatever you choose to call it, it's all about one thing. It's all about somehow being able to see that we're not what we think we are. And the only way to do that is to be able to see what we think we are. But we can't see what we think we are as long as we think we are that. So the first step, the first thing that has to happen is no matter what one calls it, we must learn to speak of ourselves in the third person. So instead of saying, I want it, I would say, Parkinson wants it. So that way, I am separating myself from this desire, I want it. Or I'm separating myself from this thought, I think this. I asked Diana this morning, what did you observe? And she told me what she observed. And I said, well, what do you think about that? And she said, I think. So what happened was she stopped observing when she started talking. 
because the first thing she did is she ascribed permanence and oneness to herself by saying, I think, rather than saying, well, whatever it was that was observing Diana thinks this, whatever it was she thinks. But we don't do that because we are so hypnotized and under this illusion that this is who I am. I am this person in this body. I am this person thinking these thoughts. I am this person feeling this, these feelings. I am this person wanting these wants and desiring these desires and wishing these wishes. I am that person. And this gives us a sense of identity. But the price of this sense of identity, this sense of oneness, is that we do not get to see who we are. We do not get to know ourselves. We do not get to understand other people. We do not get to see the oneness of the many different parts. The formation of imaginary I is a development which is acquired. We're all born a little bit awake, but we're born among sleeping people and we soon learn to imitate them. When we're born, we're not completely asleep. We're a little awake, but we're born and everybody in the room that we're born into is sleeping. And everyone we meet is sleeping. We start to see that the only way to get along with these people is to start to be like them. And so we start to imitate them. They smile when we do the things that, that they want us to do. They are cross when we do the things that they don't want us to do. So we be, And we realize that we are dependent upon these people. So we start to do whatever it is we have to do to please these people, to make them smile, so that they will give us the things that we need. Love, food, affection, clothing, changing us, whatever it is that we think, whatever it is we actually need, these people will give it to us, but only if we can keep them from being cross with us. And so our journey into this acquired development begins, this imaginary I, where we start to imagine, like they are imagining, that we are this body, these, this collection of thoughts, this collection of feelings, and we start to call that I. But it is imaginary because it is actually acquired from the sleeping people around us. When a child begins to say, I want this, it has already become infected and thinks that it exists as I. But there is a stage of development where a child doesn't say, I want this. Where a child says, baby wants this, or whatever you call him or her. Johnny wants this. Later, it changes to I. And this is the beginning of the formation of imaginary I, and this is what it has learned from the sleeping people around it. So this is the beginning of it submerging into an illusion, into this other reality that it was born into, but it is acquired. It be, starts to become coated by the film that sleeping people ooze. It begins to think it has a real permanent I. It begins to establish a false relationship with itself. Instead of directly experiencing, as babies do, it learns from us to develop this relationship with itself as I. Personality has to develop. It's not wrong. I really can't verify that. What I can say is it is a benefit to me to say personality is not wrong because if personality is not wrong, I'm not wrong. And if I'm not wrong, at least I can approach myself with some kindness, some friendliness, some generosity, some kind of a magnanimous attitude toward myself. Whereas if I'm wrong, as judgmental as I've learned to be in this life, I'm not going to be very nice to myself. And if I'm not nice to myself, well, we all know what we're like with people who are not nice to us. 
And now if you're not nice to yourself, you're not going to be very forthcoming with yourself. One of the things that must happen here, if you really want to see what you actually are, is you've got to be able to look at yourself without judgment. You've got to be able to look at yourself without condemning yourself. You've got to be able to look at yourself without trying to beat yourself to death. This for us is a very difficult thing. But this first step is personality isn't wrong. It had to happen. False personality brings wrong emotional reactions. So now we're making a distinction between personality and false personality. We're saying that false personality, that is personality that's not real, that is false, brings wrong emotional reactions. It's based on the pretense of imagining that we know something. Now the problem with us is we don't imagine we know something. We know we know something. We know we know all the things that we know. We know that Republicans are bad and Democrats are good. We know that black people are good and white people are bad. We know that Mexican people are industrious and white people are lazy. We know all of these things. No one has to tell us these things. We know these things and we're very sure of these things. False personality, because we know these things, then brings wrong emotional reactions. So since we have categorized all of these people as this way or all of these people as that way, there's really only one emotional reaction available to us. When we're around the wrong people, our emotional reaction is to dislike them. When we're around the right people, our emotional reaction is to like them. And it leaves nothing left for direct experience. Like, well, who's really there and what's really there and what's really happening? It doesn't matter. We already know, and this is false personality, the pretense that we know something that we actually in truth do not know. Because in truth, you cannot know anything because in truth, everything is new every instant. Everything is changing all the time. But we don't know that because we know something else instead. For example, and our knowing is based on this idea of permanence, that I have this body and it's always the same. Oh, sometimes it feels hot or cold, sometimes it's sick or sometimes it's hungry, but it's basically me and it's the same and it's my body. And we have these thoughts and I may have these thoughts and that thoughts, but it's my mind that I'm having the thoughts in. Well, I may have this emotion and that emotion, but it's, but, but it's my heart that's having the emotions. So the emotions may be different, but I am always the same. My heart is always the same. The thoughts may be different, but it's always my mind, and I always come back to that. The body may change a little bit. It may get sicker, it may be healthy, it may be happy, it may, it may be whatever it is, but it's always my body. I may be up or I may be down, I may be happy or I may be depressed, but I'm always me. And so this idea of permanence then becomes a real problem for us because we then can have this false belief based on this imaginary I, this imaginary person, this imaginary permanence. We can then have false beliefs, false emotions, false thoughts. And we can believe that they're real and permanent because we have this imaginary I that we believe is real and permanent. It gets convoluted and complex, even though it's very simple. To try and explain it and to try and have it have any real meaning for us we have to have examples and one example may work for me, but it may not work for you. So you've got to take a leap and somehow find examples for yourself so that you can begin to make these connections. This is where effort is necessary. So if you're just going to sit here and expect it to get in through your pores or enter in through your ears and somehow change you, that could happen. I don't know that that might happen, but I have found that there is so much already in me that is connected up wrongly that when it does get in there, it falls on all the wrong places 
and it just jams things up and makes things not work properly or makes me think that things are working properly when they are actually not working properly. So all of this is based on the pretense of imagining that we know something. To undermine its power, we must realize our ignorance of what we know. We've got to be able to question what we absolutely beyond the shadow of a doubt know. What you are certain about is the one thing that you need to question the most. Now, unfortunately, we are certain about so many things that it means we need to question just about everything. For example, we're certain that we're sitting in our bodies. We're certain that this is our mind thinking these thoughts. We're certain that these are our emotions because we are feeling them. We're certain of that. How could I be thinking someone else's thoughts? How could I be having someone else's emotions? We've explained that in the very beginning. We're born a little awake, but then we're born among sleeping people and we begin to imitate them. And when we fall asleep, we have the same imagination they have. This one says, well, these people are like this. And this one says, well, this is a good thing. And so in our sleep, we imagine that these are our thoughts. We take those thoughts and they get into our head and we imagine that there are thoughts. We see that these people feel very strongly about this. They get very agitated about this particular subject. So we start to have those same feelings. We start to imitate those feelings. We have those feelings. How many little kids who have Republican parents are Republicans? How many little kids whose parents are Catholics are Catholics? All of them. How many little kids get into fights with other little kids because that kid's parents are this and this kid's parents are that? And those two don't get along, so the children fight when they have no reason to fight whatsoever, except that their parents believe this or their parents believe that. So that means that they believe that. This is the illusion that we're talking about. And this is how it happens. So we've got to begin to realize our ignorance of what we know. False personality is ambitious. The one thing about false personality is that it likes to keep itself going at all costs. Imaginary I wants to keep itself going at all costs. An imaginary I, that this idea that I am a permanent thing, this idea that, I'm, that, I, that I am a permanent I, that it's not changing, that it's always my mind and it's always my heart, even though the thoughts and the feelings change, it's always me. Even though the body may be hot or cold, it's always my body. It's always the same in that way. So this idea of permanence then lends this idea of a false personality because it's an imaginary I, it supports this idea of a false personality, this pretense, because it's already based on some imagination. It can easily pretend. So it's pretending that it has a mind that thinks its own thoughts. It's pretending that it has a heart that feels its own feelings. Now, is it really? For us, it is because when we are it, when we are identified with it, when we think I am this, we think, well, of course it does. Well, of course, this is absurd that you would even suggest this. But it has to be suggested if we wish to get out of whatever it is that we find ourselves in. And I don't know what that is. For some people, it's, I got, I got an email from somebody the other day, and the, the person that they love, is, it's unrequited. That person doesn't love them back. And they need to know how to get the love that they want. And they want the work to do it for them. They want the work to help them to get that. And this is how false personality gets people to the work. But you see, at the same time that false personality in its ambitious desire to get what it wants is getting people into the work, the work is also working because as false personality comes into contact with the work, some little bit there and some little bit here just happens to fall between the cracks of the machine and it gets someplace where it starts to eat away like a worm. 
and it starts to undermine false personality. And false personality fights back, and it fights back hard. Because it's ambitious and it wants to keep itself going, it will get us into the work, but once it's into the work, rather than getting out of the work directly, false personality will try to do the work. And this is when it really becomes a problem. Behind false personality lies ignorance and helplessness. The truth about false personality is it can't do anything. Everything that it does is mechanical. Everything that it does is learned. Everything that it does is acquired. It has no ability to act. It can only react, which makes it helpless. Unless somehow it can create an environment where all of the things that make it react the way it wants to react are happening, it's helpless. So this is why the world is at war. This is why people crack each other's skulls. They're trying to get other people to do all of the things that they're supposed to do so that false personality can react in the way that will make you happy. But false personality can't really make anyone else do anything else because it can't make itself do anything. It can only react. And everyone else is asleep and in false personality and doing the same thing. So it becomes this huge morass, huge jumble of insanity of people striking out at one another. We wonder why it doesn't work. False personality maintains itself through pride and vanity, which dominates us, enabling us to live false lives. As long as we've got pride and vanity, the two giants, that the work calls the two giants that go before us arranging everything. What does that mean, arranging everything? Well, it means it goes ahead of us and it makes sure that we never see anything that contradicts our image of ourselves. We never see us doing anything wrong. In other words, it goes through and it covers all the mirrors in the house with a blanket or a cloth so that we never come up to a mirror accidentally and see ourselves. And it covers all the windows so that you can never accidentally see your reflection in the window and actually see what you're doing, what your posture is, what your facial expression is, what your hair looks like, what you really look like. And then vanity, so pride does that, it goes and covers everything. And then vanity keeps this little chatter going about how you really are pretty and you really are handsome and you really are not so bad and you're definitely better than that person over there. And you really are different and you really do have talent and you really are special. Vanity keeps on feeding us all of this wind, all of these lies, and we keep on buying it because we're asleep and we've heard it all of our lives. Our mothers told us, oh, you're special, oh, you're such a pretty little girl, you're such a handsome boy, oh, you're such a big, strong boy, oh, you're so brave, oh, you're so smart, oh, you're this, oh, you're that. Now, of course, there was the other side of that, too, and, and false personality uses that not only on us, but on others as well. In fact, we'll use both on us and others as well. Gurdjieff said, the whole of the external world, everything that is going on now, all the news, everything you read in the papers, everything you see on television, everything you hear on the radio, is maintenance of false personality. What is unreal, invented, false personality, dominates our emotional reactions more than anything else. So everything in the whole world that's going on, everything that we know about, all the whole external world, is maintaining false personality because it's unreal and it's invented. And because of this, false personality dominates our emotional reactions more than anything else. So when we're feeling something, we are absolutely certain that what we're feeling is real. But what this says is that what we're feeling is not real. What we're feeling is a reaction to what is not real. This is a bitter pill for us to swallow because we're sure that we can trust our feelings. We're sure that even if our thoughts deceive us, we're certain 
that our feelings will not deceive us. And so people charge into love. Well, we just passed up Valentine's Day. People all over the world were spending millions of dollars. Well, maybe not all over the world, but people all over America were spending millions of dollars on a fantasy, something that absolutely is not real. They give the gift. They don't get the response they expect, they want, they desire. And you never really get the response you want, you expect, you desire. Even if you do, it won't last. So, okay, so I gave you flowers and chocolate and a diamond ring. You owe me forever. So you have to do exactly what I want you to do, exactly the way I want you to do it, especially tonight. And maybe, maybe he or she does that night. But then a week later, they don't. Well, what about the chocolates? What about the flowers? What about the diamonds? They can't do it because it's just a false emotional reaction to something that isn't true. I love, but I love you. And if you loved me, you would do this. And we don't know what love is. Ospensky said, find in yourself what you hate in others and turn it around to begin to object to yourself and to hate yourself. Turn your emotional reactions on yourself. I had written here, hate won't work. He was wrong. But then I realized, you know, it's probably a good idea to look at what he said rather than to interject your own thoughts here. And so I looked up hate and it was strong dislike. I don't know what I think about hate, but I know it's a bad thing and I'm not supposed to do it. Therefore, I don't hate and all hate is wrong. And this is exactly the construct of false personality. Hate is bad, hate is wrong, therefore I don't do it. Do you strongly dislike people? Well, no, not really, not if it's hate. Sometimes I have a mild disagreement with people. Sometimes when they're really obnoxious and unpleasant, I think that's not good for them. They're really hurting themselves and they're making my life tedious and unpleasant. But I don't hate them and, I don't, and I'm not really irritated by them and I don't really dislike them. Why? Well, because I'm a kind, generous, wonderful person. Well, who told you that? Well, it's easy to see. I've worked all, I've done all this work, so I must be, because all those things are bad. And I'm not trying to be bad, I'm trying to be good. So because I'm trying to be good, I must be being good. How do you do that? Well, I say, I just slap these labels on my feelings. I just slap these labels on my thoughts. What are the labels? Well, this is work and I'm doing this work and I'm a good person and, and I'm making progress and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you start to see it and it's, it's actually amusing, especially amusing when you can see it in me. It's not, 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 near, not nearly as amusing when you can see it in yourself, but it's especially amusing when you can see it in me. When the day comes along that you can see it in yourself and be just as amused as you are when you see it in someone else, good. That'll be a good day. It could be today, it could happen, it's possible. Real work is on the emotional center. We come to the emotional center through the intellectual center. The problem I've had with the people that I've met in the fourth way is that the intellectual fourth way, that is the people who haven't come through the intellectual center to the emotional center, the people who have stopped in the intellectual center and built their houses and built their churches and built their schools and built their farms and built their edifices and built their groups and built their meetings and built their system and built their books and built their libraries. Those people have formed a cult of the fourth way and it's an intellectual cult. It's a cult where how you deal with your emotional reactions to the world is you intellectually deal with them. You never get into the emotional center. You stay in the intellectual center and you deal with labeling and sorting. It's like wearing gloves in a fishery. You never really touch the smelly fish. You never really gut the fish yourself. You never really cut the fish's head off yourself. You never really get splashed with the stuff. You 
stay in the intellectual center where you can dissect and separate and do all of these things without getting your hands dirty. I have a problem with that. My problem is I don't want to do that. Many people in the fourth way fail when they make the fourth way a religion. Now, a religion is a religion. It is a place to have religious feelings, religious emotions. It is a place to have feelings of worship. When we get into the fourth way, because it comes to us through the intellectual center, and because it's so easy to get stuck in the intellectual center, we start to need, the intellect starts to need some kind of religious feelings. So it makes the fourth way a religion, and it starts to call the absolute God. And then it takes things like Gurdjieff saying, well, his endlessness, the suffering of his endlessness. And we say, well, that's God. And so there is a God, but it's not the God of the religion because we've already rejected the religion. But we still need some kind of feeling. We still need some kind of emotional something, some religious feelings. And so we make the fourth way a religion. And it was never meant to be a religion. Gurdjieff was a deeply religious man, a very spiritual man. And his religion was Orthodox Christian, basically. Now, I'm sure that he found the esoteric truth in Sufism and a lot of other, in Buddhism and Christianity, and he found the underlying source of all that to be something that he could soak in, that something he could allow his religious feelings, his religious emotion to be buoyed in. But we're not Gurji. And for us to pretend to do the same thing is a mistake. Religion should never be taken away from people. In fact, in my opinion, it should be encouraged. You should be encouraged to have a religious life and a fourth way life. I encourage you to have your religion and to practice the fourth way. Practice the fourth way everywhere. Practice your religion everywhere. But let them be separate things for the time being. I think if you're without one or the other, it's like a one-legged man. You end up hopping through life instead of walking through life. And I don't think that's the best way. I guess what I'm saying is that people without religion shouldn't really practice the fourth way or should get religion to have proper religious emotions in the fourth way. It's like training wheels. Can you learn to ride a bike without training wheels? Yes. Can you ride a bike after you've learned how to ride a bike if it still has training wheels on it? Yes. Either way, it's more difficult. If you don't know how to ride a bike and you learn to ride a bike without training wheels, you fall down more, so that's harder. But if you learn how to ride a bike and you leave the training wheels on, it then limits your ability to ride the bike. You take the training wheels off and you expand your ability to ride the bike. Put the training wheels back on and it starts to limit you again. This is our problem. You can come at it from two different ways. And so there is no answer to it. The answer to it is when you're in this state, do this. When you're in that state, do something else. Real personality is different from false personality. There was a day, there was a time when sealing a deal with a handshake was better than a contract. And it wasn't too long ago. There was a time when tradespeople could go to work on a job and say, okay, I will do this. And the, and the guy would say, okay, and I will pay you this. And they could shake hands on it and say, okay, it's a deal. And then they would do it. And both of them would keep their end of the bargain. It's not that way today. In business, you cannot do business with a handshake. As a rule, there are times when you can. But the bigger the business gets, the more the organization is involved, the less you can do. You have the government involved. You have taxes. You have the OSHA. You have this. You have that. You have insurance. You have all these things now so that it starts to get so complex that it's hard for a tradesman 
to simply say, okay, I'll do this and you'll pay me that and that'll be that. Because he finds he does that and he gets paid that and then this guy comes along and takes this part and this guy comes along and takes this part and this guy takes along, comes along and takes this part and the guy doesn't have anything. He's got to sell us tools to pay the bills, the taxes that were levied on him. And so it all gets so complex and people start to mistrust each other. The government doesn't trust people to give them the money that they say they owe them. So people, so the government starts to watch over people and it starts to attach their wages. It starts to take this from them or take that from them or demand this or demand that because all people are dishonest. And of course, all people are dishonest because the government is dishonest in stealing from the people. So then you have tradesmen who can no longer go out and shake hands and say, okay, it's a deal, we'll do this. Now you ask a tradesman today, who he'd rather work for, a rich man or a poor man? And a real tradesman who has actually worked for money will say, I'd rather work for a poor man. And they'll say they'd rather work for a poor man because they know the rich man loves money more than the poor man and the rich man is more inclined to cheat him. And they learn that through hard experience. They've learned that the best bargainers, the best sharpers, are the rich, not the poor. I remember when I was living in Guatemala, the, the teachers, by Guatemalan standards, were well-to-do. By our standards, they were poor. And I remember a guy coming around to the school. I was sitting at my desk, and he was, he'd come around, and, and as he came around, he just kind of had his hand out. And, and teachers would give him a couple of coins. I thought, how amazing. Why are they giving this bum, why are they giving this bum money? Don't they know they're just encouraging him to not work? Don't they know they're just encouraging him to be a bum and to not do anything? No, they didn't know that. They thought they were helping somebody out who was in a worse position than they were. They could more easily give. I had much more to give, but I couldn't give. But they could. They had no problem opening their hands and giving. I did. Who was the richer? From my perspective now, they were. Both the rich and poor are acquired and they belong to personality. False personality behaves externally without the internal side of us corresponding to what we're doing. I could give when I saw the teachers give, but without something internal that corresponded to that external action, that's false personality. Giving because the teachers would say, oh, well, he's cheap if he doesn't, and even if they wouldn't say it, I would say, oh, well, I'm cheap if I don't. So give, well, how much? Well, you know, not much. <laughs> just enough to salve my conscience. This is the reality of it. This is false personality. False personality pretends to believe what it doesn't believe. But you see, it doesn't know it's pretending. It's really believing that it believes what it believes. You see, when you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. You're certain that you're right. You're certain that you're acting in accord with all of the best, highest things inside of you. And it's only later that maybe you get a glimpse that you were not at all, that you were being selfish, or that you were being false, that you were plastering a smile on your face automatically, mechanically, without ever really knowing what was really going on inside of yourself because you couldn't see it, because you couldn't separate from it. This is our condition. Personal work depends on inner sincerity with oneself. Thus, false personality must be made passive through self-observation. If we have to have inner sincerity, then we have to make false personality passive. And there's only one way to make false personality passive. You have to be able to see it. It won't act in the light. If you cast light on it, it won't act. It loses its power, diminishes its power, I should say. For this to happen, the ideas of the work must penetrate beyond false personality 
and make a place in us internally. This is very, very difficult because the false personality brought us to the work and the false personality uses the work. So we have got to separate from false personality and begin to observe it in order for the ideas of the work, for an idea every once in a while to get past false personality and to fall on something real, more internal in us. This is very difficult. And this is where the whole idea of salvation by faith or works comes in. Well, salvation comes by faith and by works. It doesn't come by works and it doesn't come by faith. You have to have both. So in order to get out of prison, you can't just believe you can get out of prison. You've got to do something to get off your butt and get out of prison. Now, it's not enough to just want to get out of prison and then get a shovel and start digging somewhere. You've got to know how to dig, where to dig, when to dig, what direction to go, how deep to go, what direction to go after that. There are a lot of different things involved in it. And unless someone who has already done that can help you, you're going to be digging in circles for the rest of your life and you'll get nowhere. Or you might get somewhere. Do you really want to take that chance? Do you really want to put all your effort into something that you might get something out of? Is it really prudent to trust your mind and your feelings in your body? Is it really prudent to trust yourself as you know yourself to be, as you are, to get you out of where you are, what yourself got you into? Is that really, does that really make any sense? And the answer is, if you can look at it objectively and sincerely, no, it, is not, it does not make any sense at all. Yet, we do it every day. So we know that the work has to penetrate beyond false personality and make a place internally. And the mechanics of this move is beginning to realize there's nothing you can condemn in another that's not in you. Well, how can that help me? It helps me to stop putting false personality out there on the other person. As long as I'm putting condemnation out there on another person, I'm not seeing that it's in me. So the first step is to realize there's nothing you can condemn in another person that's not in you. This is a bitter pill because we're absolutely certain that's not true. And we can prove it over and over and over again. And that's called self-justification. If you're cold, hard, and contracted, be sure the false personality is ruling. Realizing the kind of person you are will bring mercy and a wide range of affection. So if you find yourself not able to give that coin as easily as the poorer teacher could give that coin, then be sure that it's false personality responding. If you are able to give more and watch yourself as you're giving, looking around to see what other people think, you're getting a glimpse of false personality. And you should make note of that. So if your mercy and wide range, wider range of affection is to be seen by other people, just understand that false personality has taken that new piece of the puzzle and used it for itself. The work has fallen on false personality and false personality is now working the work instead of the work working us. Maurice Nicole said, do you think following moral arrogance and the love of petty domestic power will lead you to the realization of your own nothingness? Will it make personality passive? Growth of essence will change your level of being. How do we change our level of being? How do we become something more expanded, something bigger than what we are, than this little self that we've imagined ourselves to be? How do we do that? Well, something else in us has to grow apart from this little self, apart from this imaginary I. And what the work calls that something is essence. So essence must begin to grow. And then our level of being will change. As long as first false personality dominates personality, then personality is under the wrong direction. False personality can be noticed this way. It describes everything to itself, and it's certain that it can do. It describes everything to itself. What do you mean everything? Does it describe bad things to itself? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. 
The false personality will sacrifice you to ascribe bad things to itself so that it can continue. It will do anything at all cost, even at the cost of your life, it will continue. And it's absolutely certain that it can do. Maurice Nicole said, how difficult it is to talk to a person who, without knowing it, is full of moral arrogance, who, without knowing it, thanks God that he or she is not like other people. And I can tell you, in my business, I get to talk to a lot of people like that. And it is very difficult. It's not difficult to talk to them. It's difficult to get anywhere with them. It's difficult to ever make any headway with them. It's difficult to make any inroads into them. It's difficult to ever touch anything real in them because they are so well buffered. They are so sure that they are right and everyone else is wrong that it makes it very difficult to say anything to them that could show them in any way that there's any possibility that they could be responsible for what is happening in their life. And it's not like they're deliberately fighting you. There's no way. They just cannot do it. They cannot see it. Well, we all know that being attracts life, that our being attracts our life, except when our life isn't good. Then we know that someone else's being did that. And there we are. We're stuck. The simplest psychological mechanism in us is to see evil or shortcomings in others and never see them in ourselves. This is the linchpin of the false personality. To see the problem in someone else instead of to see it in us. This is the, this is the lever. This is the linchpin. This is the axle. This is what the wheel turns on. This is what it's all about. We see in another what we can't see in ourselves. And we're certain that it's not in us, but it is in them. And we're done. We are absolutely done. There is nothing can happen at that point. Somehow we've got to turn that around and see it in ourselves. If we can't do that, we have no hope. We must become far more conscious of ourselves. The only path that leads in that direction is self-observation, which changes our idea of ourselves. And by changing our idea of ourselves, undermines false personality. It's a very painful, tedious process. It's much easier just to have relaxation and self-acceptance. And if you can do that, I recommend it. It's much easier to have faith than works. It's much easier to have grace and predestination rather than free will. It's much easier to relax and accept than it is to make effort. It's much easier to affirm the world than deny the world. And if you can do that, then by all means do that. But if you find yourself in the same position that I found myself, where that doesn't work, or that only works to a point, then you have the next leg of the journey, which is effort, work, free will. You may not have much free will, but the little you do have, you need to use. If that's where you find yourself, then you found yourself in the right place. And if that's not where you find yourself, then you're in the wrong place. You need to be in some place where people have faith and grace and they don't have to ever worry about it. They can just relax and accept everything and it all comes to them. That's not the case with me. And I've had to admit that, realize that, accept that, and now it's time to do something about it. So when I say start here, this is where we have to start. Rather than bickering back and forth between faith or works, this or that, it's a matter of, look, it's all of that. It's what's needed at the right time. As Jess said one day last week, if a hammer is the only tool in your toolbox, everything looks like a nail.
The linchpin of this work is the practical application of the ideas shared in the podcasts. If you'll go to solidrockvista.com to the thoughts page, I've written a number of articles that will help you to practice the principles that we're sharing with you in the podcasts.